Hello, my name's Adrian Goldberg and welcome to the Byline Times podcast. The Byline Times, it's what the papers don't say, what radio doesn't report and what telly doesn't tell you. This time, Russia's invasion of Ukraine, a sad anniversary, one year on, refusing the personal and the political with Inna Sovson. Inna is the deputy leader of the opposition Holos, or Voice Party, Ukraine's former deputy minister of education and science, who's joining us from Kiev. Inna, welcome back to the Byline time podcast and uh, obviously very sad times very trying times for you and your fellow countrymen been talking on social media about your son martin going to school and having to divert to a bomb shelter the kind of daily experience that the rest of us certainly here in the uk just cannot imagine Indeed, that became a kind of part of the reality. This is something that happens pretty regular. Actually, the last time it happened was earlier today. And uh, this was a bit funny because he forgot his lunchbox at my bag. So I had to go back to school after I already dropped him off in the morning. And I get to school. And as I get to school, the sirens start uh, start ringing uh, all over the city. I enter the school and I could actually see the kids running down the stairs to the bomb shelter. So that was the first I actually saw that literally with my own eyes. But of course, that has been uh, happening since uh, September when they got back to school in offline. So yes, that is part of his experience every day now. For a while, blackouts have also been part of his school experience. So when I was picking him up from school in the evening, I would ask him, so how was the air raid sirens and how was the air raid alert? And also, did you have any blackouts? Those were the questions I would ask him instead of asking him how was his math and then, you know. Uh, how was his English and so on and so forth. So uh, yeah, that is what our kids are living through. But my son is the lucky one because his school has the bomb shelter inside the school. So they just go down the basement. He can actually continue studying offline. But there are thousands of kids in Ukraine uh, who cannot do that because their schools do not have bomb shelters or they do not have the bomb shelters big enough. So there are multiple schools where kids go to school bi-weekly so one week, these classes go to school. Next week, other classes go to school. Because in case of the air raid alert, they have to go down the bomb shelter. And if the bomb shelter is not big enough, they cannot go in. So so that is why they have to switch between online and offline all the time. So I can imagine what a mess that makes to the logistics uh, for the parents. Um, so imagine organizing that. So that is our reality now for a year. Yes. And we have this incongruous situation, don't we? Life in some senses then carrying on as normal with your son going to school, all be interrupted by the air raid sirens. Other parts of your country have seen terrible devastation and brutality wrought upon them by the Russian invaders. Yes, again, that is what makes me feel lucky, as if you can say so. Uh, again, having my son experience that is, is not nice, but again, he's safe and he's well. But I remember seeing um, children in Kherson when Kherson was still under Russian occupation in September, and they were starting the school year in Kherson. And I could see Ukrainian teenagers, and there was like 10% of the kids who were still in Kherson, 90% of the kids have left with their parents by that time. But I could see Ukrainian teenagers who were forced to go to school in Russian occupation, and they were forced to sing Russian anthem and wave Russian flag. 
And they were not small kids. They were big enough to understand what is happening. You know, those were the kids who grew up Ukrainian, who were always singing the Ukrainian national anthem. They don't know Russian national anthems. They don't know what this country is. And they were forced to do that. And then there are still thousands who are still under occupation. Uh, there are thousands who lost their houses. There are, of course, uh, tens of thousands of kids uh, uh, who lost their parents, particularly dads, of course, fighting in the military, but not only. There are multiple women who have been killed as well, both in the military and civilian. So, yes, the situation is even more dramatic, so much more dramatic. So I actually feel like the lucky one, despite all of that. Yeah, it's very difficult, I think, for many people in the UK and the West generally to understand the history of Ukraine. There will be parts of the Ukraine where people have Russian as a first language, but who nevertheless think of themselves as Ukrainian. And again, referencing your social media posts, you posted recently a remembrance of the day of the Ukrainian coat of arms. And this is a coat of arms that is specifically Ukrainian that goes back a thousand years. And I've spoken with commentators like Zarina Zabrisky and Denis Gansha, who is in Kyiv, as is Zarina, about the sense in which Russia is attempting a genocide here. It is attempting to wipe out not every Ukrainian person, but the sense of Ukrainian separateness, the sense that Ukraine is a people, the sense that Ukraine is a language, the sense that Ukraine is a nation. He wants to obliterate all that. Very much so. Overall, I see there are two major roots of this Russian aggression. One is this historical anonymity towards the idea of Ukraine being separate. And second, of course, Ukraine at this point of, of our history, choosing the path which is different from the one that Russia chose, us choosing to be democracy, us choosing to go closer to European Union, uh, choosing human rights and, and all of that. That is a danger to it in itself to Russia. But then, of course, there are strong historical roots to that as well. And of course, Russia is actually extremely annoyed and still very annoying for them to recognize that Ukrainian state is actually more ancient than Russian. Well, of course, Kyiv has been found way earlier than Russia. It was actually people from around Kyiv who went to then, uh, what is now Russia and found uh, Moscow. Big mistake on our side, but still. Ukrainian statehood has been there much longer. This territory, the city of Kyiv that I'm in right now, was actually the center of what was called Kievan Rus. They, they have taken over the name later on, but it was here. That is where it all started. And that is what Russians cannot forgive us, that they are actually older than we are. But well, connected to my personal history, I'm a graduate of a university called Kiev Mohila Academy, which was founded in 1615. And then graduates of Kiev Mohila Academy actually went to Moscow to found schools there. Again, big mistake on our side. But again, this also tells the, the story that Russia is, of course, now huge and all of that, but we're actually more ancient. And that is, for Putin particularly, this ancient history is extremely important. And he really wants to change that in the present. He wants to change the history. So this war is also about history, right? And it has been uh, like this for, for centuries now. I grew up in Kharkiv. 
which is the second biggest city in Ukraine. It's in the very east of the country, 40 kilometers to the Russian border. Uh, but it was a Ukrainian city, which was very much Russified. So people were basically forced to speak Russian if they wanted to make a career, if they wanted to get any positions, or if they didn't want to be humiliated, or what is worse, put to prison because they would be in Ukrainian nationalists. I actually grew up in a Ukrainian-speaking family. Uh, like 30% of people in Kharkiv would, would actually recognize that their native language is Ukrainian, but we would never speak it in public in the 90s when I was still living there. Because if I did, I would be bullied, I would be laughed at. I was actually bullied in my kindergarten because I was a Ukrainian speaker in a country which was at the time called Ukrainian Soviet Socialist Republic. It has Ukrainian in the name, but if you spoke Ukrainian, that means there was something wrong with you. So that is the part of history which I think many people don't understand to what extent that ancient history is part of our daily reality now. And indeed, as you did mention very correctly, the language issue, again, is probably very much misunderstood in the West because people tend to think that the language you speak is the language you identify yourself with ethnically. The closest explanation I can give you would be this. There are people in Canada who speak French and then there are those who speak English, right? But that doesn't mean they identify themselves as English or French. It doesn't matter. They identify themselves as Canadian. That is what people need to understand about Russian-speaking Ukrainians. Majority of them would still say that we are Ukrainians. Just for multiple historical reasons, our native language would be Russian. Be it because in very many cases, like my generation of people in their 30s, their grandparents would be speaking Ukrainian. Their parents switched to Russian because of Korea and, and you know, just social prestige, whatever. And that is where they ended up speaking Russian, but their grandparents would be speaking Ukrainian. So that's a very different situation compared to what I think the situation is in the rest of Europe. And I think needs some explaining. The next question is quite a difficult one, really, because we would like to think in the West that Putin is the individual who is driving this, unquestionably to a degree, he is. But to what extent do you think his vision of Russian expansionism is shared by ordinary Russian people? I think that is a very correctly framed question, because indeed, people want to think that it's just Putin. But the problem is that it's not. Putin, to an extent, he's just playing with the feelings of, of Russian exceptionalism and expansion, which have already been there. Look, I think it's strange to imagine that happening in Ukraine. We have a new president who suddenly says, let's go and invade Rostov, which has traditionally actually and ethnically been Ukrainian territory. Not a single Ukrainian would claim that to be the right move. Because this is not what we are. This is not what we do. This is not part of our culture. This is not part of, of our political thinking. I mean, I have many problems with the Ukrainian political thinking, but this is not us, right? But for Russia, this is part of who they are. They have always been an empire, and they're probably the last big empire left who are still thinking in very 19th century terms of empire should be expanding. You can talk about, you know, other types of empires nowadays, but this is not the same way as it was done in the 19th century, or 18th century. But Russia still is that type of empire. And their people are still thinking in that manner. And uh, absolute majority, 80% of Russians support this war against Ukraine. And it's not because Putin forced them to do that. 
but because that is what they believe to be the right thing to do. Look, I know multiple stories of friends who have family members who moved to Russia at some point of their lives, be it in the 90s or some other time, you know, people moved for different reasons uh, over there. And all of them suddenly embraced this idea that we should invade Ukraine, even if they were ethnically Ukrainian. And again, this is not because of some political leadership. I think this is just part of the culture that is there that is very problematic because I wish the solution would be just get rid of Putin or wait for him to die, kill him, whatever, it doesn't matter. But I'm afraid that if we identify the problem correctly, the problem is with the way the whole Russian people think, and then the solution are much more complicated. How significant was the visit of President Biden to Kyiv? Oh, we talked about my son in the in the beginning. I'm going to get back and quote him here. So I picked him up late in the evening. His his dad actually picked him up from school and I took over that later. So we had a very interesting small talk with my son, who's 10. And I said, do you know who came to Kyiv today? And he said, yes, President of the United States, Joe Biden. And I say, what are your thoughts? Why do you think he came? He looks at me, pauses for five seconds, and then he says, because we are unstoppable, we continue to fight against Russians. That was a 10-year-old. I didn't train him to say that, but I do think that this kind of him, uh, in very short sentences, as much as, as you can expect political analysis from the 10-year-old, I think he pointed something very correct. Joe Biden came because we never give up. He came because we are still territory of freedom. An American president can come here but Russian president cannot. And I think that historical perspective, we remain territory of freedom and president of the United States coming here signifies that. Also, there was a very strong emotional appeal to that to this visit. Look, we are now, as we are talking to you, around the anniversary, I don't know, like one year mark of the big invasion. And of course, everybody here is very emotional. You know, we feel like, I feel personally, the whole year of my life has been stolen away from me. I didn't live my whole year the way I planned it to live, and so on and so forth. So, so everybody is very emotional and, uh, you know, sensitive about this. And President of the United States coming here, again, is this very important for us on the very emotional level, meaning that he sees us and the world sees us, the world recognizes what we have been living through. That was important. But I also think there is a third layer to this. And the third layer is that this was a message to the rest of the world, that this is where the world stands. I would point out to one specific country that I think this message was directed to, and that was China. And I think that in that sense, Joe Biden also pointed out, this is what America stands for. And if China plans to support Russia one way or another, please remember that this would be against what the United States believed to be the right thing to do. I think that was also important dimension, which we probably don't pay enough attention to. At the same time, the West, the United States stood by, didn't it, when Russia invaded Crimea in 2014 and the Donbass, the United States and the United Kingdom also withdrew in pretty shabby circumstances from Afghanistan, having previously promised to protect those regions. So can you have faith and trust that the West will stand by you? I'll tell you this. The world has indeed very much ignored 
the annexation of Crimea and the start of the war in Donbass, just like it did ignore the start of the war and uh, occupation of part of Georgia, and basically Russian occupation of territory of Moldova, which is at this point of time is gaining more attention. Transnistria, yes. In Transnistria, yeah. yes. Yeah, because of the growing rumors now that they might try to take over the government in Moldova. And I think that points to the fact that ignoring this uh, uh which seems to be smaller conflicts, but they're in the same trend, the same type of behavior. It's just that at one point, this behavior becomes impossible to be ignored. But the signs were there. If the world reacted the way it did in 2022, if the world reacted the same way in 2014, that's what I keep on back to thinking. People in Mariupol would have still been alive the city of Mariupol would still be standing. We wouldn't have lost thousands of lives over here in Ukraine. But at that time, the world chose to pretend that it's just a local conflict, that there is no good reason for the world to pay too much attention to it. I mean, of course, there were sanctions and so on. But to a big extent, yeah, Ukraine didn't get the support it needed. Neither did Georgia, neither did Moldova. I think we all suffered from the same type of behavior and ignorance on the side of the West. But I think that at this point, what has changed is that this war became too big to be ignored. That is issue number one. Like, simply cannot ignore bombing of Mariupol. You cannot ignore a foreign power coming 20 minutes drive from a capital of a European country and just pretend that we can go business as usual. So this size of the conflict is important. But I also think at this point... And that is what I keep on saying in all the interviews I'm doing and all the meetings I'm having with the foreign politicians. It's not just Ukraine's interests that are at stake right now. It's the world interests. We cannot allow bullies to do what they want to do because then the whole world order will collapse. So for Ukraine to win, it's not just in our interests, but it's also in the interests of the other countries. And I think they're starting to understand that. Despite it being very difficult, it was very difficult for Europe to cut off Russian gas and take other sanctions that they did. Now we see that the movement to provide weapons is not as fast as we wanted it to be. But I still think that at this point, they understand that relying on such unreliable power as Russia is very dangerous and is going to cause problems for themselves. Russia did not just start the war in Ukraine. It was intervening in electoral process in the United States. It was messing up elections in European countries, in the UK, everywhere. So they're just the bully that needs to be stopped, not just for the sake of Ukrainians, but also for them to stop intervening in the affairs of other Western countries. Listen, Inna, we stand in solidarity with you here from the UK. We wish you and your husband and your lad, Martin, all the very best going to school, and we thank you for your time as well. That's Inna Sovson speaking to us, member of the opposition in the parliament in Ukraine, talking to us from Kiev. My name is Adrian Goldberg. You've been listening to the Byline Times podcast. If you want to support our work, please take out a subscription to the Byline Times to get more details on how to access our wonderful newspaper over at our newsbreaking website, bylinetimes.com. That's at bylinetimes.com. This episode has been produced with Harvey White. Thank you to Harvey as well. We'll see you again very soon. Cheers now. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.